Open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. My point is, um, in all of that, it's so good to be here. I love Spokane, um, and it's a delight to be here with you guys. Matt asked me to teach the next passage in your series you've been going through in the book of Matthew, and I, I see what you did here, Matt. I, like, if I was leading a church, I would teach the book of Ian, if there is one, you know? Like, I just picture, like, Matt Deason, Matt Karsh, like, praying and talking, like, what should, we, what should we teach through next? Like, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I'm, just, I'm feeling really drawn to the book of Matt. I, I don't, you know, that, nice. I like your style. That's great. So um, we're going to pick up where we left off in last week's passage. I'm just going to start by reading through it. So if you want to open, it's Matthew chapter 10. You can look down. Verse 1 it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. Verse 14, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Verse 16, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's the passage today. Would you join me in just saying one more quick prayer, um, just that God would speak to us through what we're about to study together. God, again, um, we just say thank you for the opportunity to be here with family in Christ today and uh, that you're doing a good work here in this place. And we just open up our lives to you. um, No one knows us better than you do. You created us. Um, As the scripture says, we were knitted together in our mother's womb and you've known us since the very beginning um, of our humanness. And I just pray that Um, you would speak into each one of these lives, that you'd have your way in us, uh, use me to encourage, and I pray uh, that you would lead us in how you want us to live as individuals, as families, as married couples, um, but most of all, as followers of Jesus in this place and this time where you have us for a reason. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so the text we find ourselves in today is the textbook passage in all of scriptures for the call of the disciples. It's a very famous passage um, where Jesus calls and sends out the 12 for the very first time. And because of that, scholars say that this text is the prototype or the model for all of us today in terms of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus. What is our identity as a disciple? Um, What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So on one hand, uh, what we just read is a very significant text. It applies to all of us who desire to follow Jesus in 2018. On the other hand, it's also kind of weird. Like, did you catch some of the things I was reading through this? Impure spirits. And what about the whole, you know, don't take an extra shirt or coins in your belt or bag or staff. Um, It's... A lot of this is uh, very, you know, ancient Jewishy and and difficult for us as modern Westerners uh, to understand. You know, what does this stuff mean for us? Because if you can truly understand, get past that stuff and understand this call that Jesus gives to his disciples, it really, really does matter for you and I. And so here's the plan. We're going to come back through the text, read back through those verses, and we're going to talk about the model that Jesus gives us in Matthew 10 for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So how would Jesus want to refocus you heading into this new year as a disciple of Jesus called to this place at this point in time. And as we talk about that, I'm also going to share a little bit about Remember New, the anti-human trafficking organization I work for, share a story in it a little bit because Matt was so kind to let me do that today. So for starters, we'll dive right in. Look back at verse 1. We're going to reread verse 1. It says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. And we'll stop right there. Um, The text is packed today with application. It's very rich. And what I want to do as we read through it, I'm going to fire off a list of takeaways because there's a ton of takeaways from the text today. I've whittled it down to seven takeaways or seven thoughts if you want to take some notes on paper or on your phone. Um, Seven thoughts on what it means for us to be disciples. Now, as it happens, the number seven in the Bible is symbolic of perfection. And so... By accident, I came up with the perfect list of takeaways. God works in mysterious ways. So seven thoughts today, if you want to take notes. I am also a dork, okay? That's something, all right. What does it mean for you and I to be disciples of Jesus? What's, ca- what's God's calling on you for this year as a disciple? First, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means that Jesus calls us into relationship. It's easy to just breeze over this first moment in the passage because it comes so fast and then passes, but it's so crucial. The author Matthew starts with Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him, or it can be translated to himself. Um, It also can be translated to be with him. That's their calling. As a disciple of Jesus, your first priority, your first calling is to a relationship with Jesus. In the first century, disciples were with their rabbi 24-7. You would walk with your rabbi on the journey. Um, You would eat with your rabbi. You would sleep next to your rabbi. You would work with your rabbi. Um, And as a disciple or a learner, the highlight of being a disciple was getting to spend time with the rabbi. And River's Edge Church, I want you to listen to me closely. If there's nothing else you get from today, get this. If you look at the text, biblically understand your number one priority as a disciple of Jesus is to be with him. 
Your calling, first and foremost, is to him, to Jesus. Discipleship is a relationship before it's a task. It's a who before it's a what. I, I love that. Jesus is calling me and he's calling you to himself. He's calling you to life with him, not just for a few hours in a building on a weekend, but at the very core of our faith and at the center of discipleship is our calling to the person of Jesus. So before your calling is to serve or to heal people or to cast out demons or to study the Bible or to preach the gospel or lead a church or to be a student or to do stuff for God, your your calling, first and foremost as a disciple, is to be in relationship with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I lose sight of this in my own life. I get caught up in the stuff and the busyness and the to-dos, and most of it's good stuff, but sometimes I forget that the whole point of this is to be with Jesus, not just to do a bunch of good stuff for him, right? From the beginning, with God, it's always been about relationship. Remember when they asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment in the whole Bible? What does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where we are changed. That's where we find life. That's where our character is worked on and we learn who we really are and we receive love from God and are changed. Being a disciple of Jesus is about being with him. And some of you here need to realize that God is inviting you into a relationship with him. And that's what all of this is about. And so it's still pretty fresh for us in the new year. And this is a good time to kind of revisit and recalibrate our own lives and priorities um, for the year. And I just want to encourage you to live this year, 2018, with Jesus. What does it look like for you to press into that relationship with him, to prioritize, to invest in your time with Jesus? Stop and think about that. that. That convicts me personally and challenges me, but also encourages me. God's not after my actions. He's after my heart, first and foremost. He's after your hearts. And so our first calling is to be in a relationship with Jesus. But second, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Uh, read the rest of verse one. It says, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And so second, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means Jesus has given us authority to overcome darkness with love. One of the first things Jesus does with his disciples, he invites them into his authority. And one of the things that he sent his disciples to do was to confront evil with authority, to push back the darkness with love, where people suffer from sickness and, and disease in a broken world and where people suffer from impure spirits. Uh, it can also be translated, and later in this text, it is translated as demons. Now that, of course, opens up for you and I the conversation in the church about spiritual warfare, right? And I have found, I pastored for about a decade before working for a member new. And I've found that today in the church, people tend to lean towards one of two extremes when we look out at the kind of mass population of the church uh, in the West. On one hand, we obsess over it, this kind of stuff. And you know, so we have people who see a demonic attack behind every burnt piece of toast and every speeding ticket, you know, it's the devil. And, and, and there's, there's people in the church that think that way. Or um, on the other side of the spectrum, we have people in the church who, and maybe sometimes for these people, it's because of the people on the other spectrum, um, people who pretend that this stuff just doesn't really exist, right? They go to the opposite side of the spectrum. And we, you know, 
um, conveniently take seriously the parts of the Bible that say to, you know, read your Bible, pray, love your spouse, um, but then don't take very seriously those parts of the Bible that describe the warfare that we live in and, and the way that the world is described by the Bible um, because we think it, it's weird, the angels and demons stuff by our, you know, 21st century standards. What I want you to realize first and foremost is that one, Jesus is the one who has victory and authority over the enemy. That's really clear in the Gospels. Remember back in the beginning of Matthew, the very first thing Jesus does after he receives the Holy Spirit, his baptism, is he goes out to the wilderness and he confronts Satan. He's tempted by Satan three times. What happens each time? He quotes scripture and he resists him. Right, and, and that's a key text in the Gospels because it demonstrates that Jesus, one, has come to confront Satan head on, and two, he has the power to overcome and defeat Satan. And what we see here is that he gives us that authority as his disciples. So if you are in Christ, you don't have to panic or obsess over this stuff, but we're also, not, we're also called to not be naive. Right? Paul says it's not a battle of flesh and blood, but of principalities and powers. Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so don't be naive and indifferent. As the church, we're called to be on guard and engage in this battle, but we do so from a place of authority, not fear. If you're in Jesus, you're in victory. And so we're sent, uh, in one sense, we're sent to confront impure spirits. And you know, let's be honest for a second. I get it. Um, as Western Europeans, this stuff, especially this kind of stuff, like demon possession, for example, may sound ridiculous to some of you here in this room. Many of us today tend to think that demons are superstitious nonsense from the pre-modern world, right? Because today, we're educated. We have Wikipedia. And even most people in the American church uh, want to think that all of the demonic powers uh, retired somewhere back in 70 AD and moved to Indonesia and stayed there, right? But what we see in the book of Acts and the Gospels and the worldview of Jesus and the scriptures would say that's just not true at all. And you have to understand, guys, you and I, we are today products of the Enlightenment and scientism, not science. Uh, we're big fans of science. I know uh, these guys are. Um, but scientism is the belief deeply embedded in Western culture that the only thing that is real is what you can put under a microscope and observe in a laboratory. But the vast majority of the world thinks that that's ridiculous. I mean, hop on a plane and go over to uh, Africa or South America or Asia. The real world, what the Bible describes, is a world in which there's much more than meets the eye and what can be examined under a microscope, and that there's this good creator God who made us to know him and experience his love, and there are other spiritual powers opposed to the living God, and these powers can have negative influences on our lives. I'll never forget uh, the first time my wife and I visited Thailand, and we were on a trip um, learning about and exploring the work that Remember New does there. And one morning, um, we went during daytime to the red light district in Bangkok. And there's a picture I'll put up on the screen. This is a corridor that we walked down right when we turned the corner. You're in the red light district. I won't show you pictures of that. That's a little too much for Sunday morning. Um, but it was during the daylight. Most of the things were shut down. Um, but I'll never forget um, just my stomach churning and the oppression um, Bangkok is the largest hub in the world for child sex slavery. Many people out west are unaware 
that 1.2 million children are being sold into the sex trade each year in our world right now. Um, and just in Bangkok alone, hundreds, um, some think thousands of children are sold in the underground human trafficking scene alone. Um, many of these children have to service anywhere between 14 to 16 adults a day. A terrible tragedy. And I remember walking, we were with a team praying um, over and, and processing and just horrible things. Um, I remember seeing a sign that literally said, fresh boys and girls, as if they're meat. And uh, I'll also never forget a guy standing on the street corner. He was wearing a black t-shirt, a picture of like a, a devil with horns. And the shirt said, and I quote, God is not here, may I help you. And I'll just share one more uh, story. While we're there, we learned, here's an example, because it, it just helps to put faces on these. I know this is difficult for us to think about, but bear with me. It's also good for us to be aware of what's happening in our world and, and the, the battle we're up against as followers of Jesus. But just to put a face on things, uh, here's a girl on this trip we learned about. Uh, her name's Chup Lee. This is her far left. This is her at age 16, three days before she was sold uh, into a brothel by her family. Um, and then this next picture is taken three years later. This is the same girl. Uh, it's a devastating photo. That's her uh, a local mission was reaching out to her and praying for her. This was uh, weeks before she died of HIV. Talk about sickness and disease. Talk about the demonic. Um, you can take the, the photo down. And guys, I want you to listen. I believe wholeheartedly in science. I believe uh, mental illness plays a huge role. And a lot of the evils we see in the world, you know, this is, we see this in the, the shootings that have been happening in the U.S. and the studies. I believe in many of the claims of psychotherapy and that you and I are in many ways products of our environment and our upbringing. Yes, 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 I believe that. I also believe, and the teaching of the scriptures make it very clear, that there are some evils that science and psychotherapy just cannot account for. The teaching of the scriptures that the kingdom of this world is actually under the sway of the evil one, that there are powers opposed to the living God that come to steal, kill, and destroy. I think in the West we just do a, a better job of hiding this stuff behind uh, what, whether it's materialism or racism or the worship of self-image and celebrity culture, um, addictions to alcohol and drugs, um, the human trafficking scene that exists here locally because it's real, it's just more underground here. Um, but the good news is the kingdom of God is at hand, right? That's the hope of the gospel and the call on the disciple is to be with Jesus and to step into his authority to confront and overthrow darkness with love. Where in your city and your community and your camp where is their darkness and brokenness? Where are their demonic strongholds of addiction? Where are their, their areas of brokenness where as disciples of Jesus, you can step in his authority and confront this stuff, bringing hope and love to the world. That's, that's our calling as disciples. You've been given authority. Read on. Verse two. You guys tracking with me? We doing all right? All right, we're gonna pick up the pace. Verse two. These are the names of the 12 apostles, it says, and he gives us this list of the very first disciples. Third, if you're taking notes, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means Jesus is changing us for the better. And I'm just gonna cruise through this list and make a few notes about some of these people. As we read through the list, you know, I've always been struck by the kind of people who Jesus picks to lead his movement and how they're not the kind of people that you and I would expect. 
right? I, I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus and my goal was to start a whole new people, a new movement that would forever alter the course of humanity, I would look for the cream of the crop, the most skilled, the extra talented, the outliers, the standouts in their class, right, to, to spearhead my movement. Instead, Jesus chooses these people. Pay attention to the kinds of people he picks. First, it says Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And so at the top of the list is Peter, who you have to understand, for all four of the gospel writers, for the entirety of the gospels, Peter is the gospel writer's sparkling example of a moron. He's, he's never getting it right. He's always saying the wrong thing at the wrong moment. He's too rash. He's too abrupt. He hops in and acts or talks before thinking constantly, right? Um, I mean, if you're Jesus, would you choose a fisherman who would deny you, rebuke you to your face, fall asleep during prayer, curse, swear, and chop off people's ears? Jesus chooses Peter, not the brightest cookie in the batch. Then it says James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Now in the Gospels, uh, James and John, these brothers, they were given the nickname Sons of Thunder because of their violent tempers. In one case, for example, you know, James and John come across a Samaritan village that rejects Jesus, and James and John come to Jesus, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, want us to pray and call down fire from heaven to consume that city? <laughs> Pyromaniacs, like, burn it down, kill them all. <laughs> like, and Jesus is like, um, no, I have not come to destroy men, but to save them, right? Then on the list, Philip. Bartholomew, Thomas, there's one. You know, when selecting the leaders of your faith, would you pick a guy whose legacy would forever be cemented as doubting Thomas? Matthew, the tax collector, it says. You guys have already heard about him a little bit, but when Matthew found, or when Jesus found Matthew, Matthew was a sellout, right? He, who had betrayed his own Jewish people and he was working for the Roman Empire to rip his own people off. He's a Benedict Arnold working for the man, and if you're going to lead a movement, would you want to spend three years of your life and ministry with an IRS agent? Jesus calls Matthew, come, be my disciple. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Oh, uh, in another verse, by the way, James, son of Alphaeus, another verse he's referred to as James the Less. Like, how would you like that nickname? Like, yeah, I'll take James the Less, okay? Simon the Zealot. Um, the Zealots in the first century were actually a group of freedom fighters, and they were insurrectionists, uh, Jewish nationalists who hated the Romans, and their one goal was to overthrow the Roman Empire through bloodshed. Today they would be called revolutionists, or some would call them terrorists, okay? That's who Simon was when he came to Jesus. And so if your message was, my kingdom is not of this world, and greater love is no man than this, that he laid down his own life for his friends. Would you choose a murderer, a cold-blooded killer, a national terrorist? Jesus says, you, I want you, come follow me. And to cap it all off, the end of the list there, we have Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. He ends up selling Jesus out for chump change. I mean, what a motley crew, right? Fishermen, tax collectors, terrorists, traitors. The scriptures at one point call these disciples Ignorant, uneducated men. Not one of them had a PhD or a Bible degree. Um, scholars think most of them were kids, like 18, 19 years old. But these 12 people end up changing the course of human history. Why? Because they became disciples of Jesus. And when you're with Jesus, when you give your life to following him, when you're with Jesus, when you step into his authority, he changes you for the better and he uses you to accomplish the most extraordinary things for his glory.
I mean, Peter, who couldn't get anything right, he later became the rock of the church. John, who had the, the violent temper, one of the sons of thunder, he became the apostle of love, who later is known in his old age for standing in front of church congregations and saying, children, love one another. He's totally a different person. Jesus is in the business of taking broken people, unlikely people, people at the bottom of the bell curve, even the worst of the worst, and changing them from the inside out. Listen, today, it doesn't matter who you are, what your past is, what sins in your record, come to Jesus and the message of the gospel is he can cleanse you and forgive you and change you and use you as you surrender to him. And he takes the nobodies, like Thaddeus. Who the heck is Thad? No one knows, right? My, my favorite, one of my favorite verses and uh, passages in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God cho chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. How many of us can relate to that? I mean, I know who I was. When I became a disciple of Jesus, I'm a nobody from Vancouver, Washington. Ever been there? Not Canada, Washington. Have you ever been there? Like Vancouver, there's not much, like the only thing in Vancouver there is cows, right? Or, and some horses, maybe. Um, I grew up, uh, my dad lost a business and we grew up about 10 years below the American poverty line. I was voted class clown in middle school. In high school, true story, in high school I was sent to detention because during an exam I jumped up onto a desk and started acting like a velociraptor. Just as a joke, but you know, um, you know when people say, you know, you, you know people um, who have this past, they're like, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic or recovering narcissist. I'm a recovering idiot. Like seriously, and I've gotta be a part of some pretty cool stuff because God's changed me. And like we, we could all share these kinds of stories. I love what Matt said when he was introduced me. I was just thinking back like when I first met Matt Deason, he's this, uh, this skinny college kid with huge hair. Like if you, I don't know, if you guys haven't seen the, he used to have like this curly Afro type thing. If you haven't seen it, go Facebook stock. There's old photos, it's worth seeing. Um, and he, don't get me wrong, Matt's always been like, you know, delightful and very intelligent, but he was this lawyer in training who, as I remember him, very quiet, and God has done this amazing work in Matt's life where, like, by the time he was being sent out to plant this church, you have, like, older men and women of God who've been following God for decades and decades saying, listen to what that guy has to say. Follow his example. I have to talk about you too, Matt Karsh. Okay, so Matt, when I first met Matt, I remember we went to Starbucks, right, for coffee. Do you remember this? And aren't you originally, are you a Cali boy? Like, yeah, that's what I thought. So here's Matt from California, football player, a small school, <laughs> smaller than Gonzaga. And, um, and I remember like, like oh, that, like, that's, that's a nice guy. That's a nice guy. Um, when we go to Africa and uh, we're on a mission trip, and Jose, one of the other pastors, he picks Matt Karsh to share the gospel with this high school. We get to the high school. It's hundreds of students, like huge crowd. And Matt gets up and he just preaches the gospel with power. And I remember I was just like, 
Like, you know in Star Wars where they're like, the force is strong with that one. You know, it's like, Jesus is strong. Like, and these guys are incredible men of God, but I've gotten the joy to watch, like, as they've been disciples of Jesus, like, they'll be the first to tell you, like, Jesus has changed us and been doing cool stuff in our lives. I'll share one more uh, modern-day example um, and allow you a window into some of what I do. This next photo is a picture of the president and founder of Remember New. His name's Carl Ralston. That's a photo I took of him with a bag of potato chips in front of his face in Romania when we were doing some work there this last year. Um, Carl was an insurance salesman in Ohio 14 years ago. 14 years ago, he was 40 years old, owned an insurance company in Ohio, and he was going through a midlife crisis. And he was feeling like, gosh, there's more I could accomplish with my life. And he was really starting to surrender his life to the Lord more and more. And he got obsessed with this verse in Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. And he was praying that every day, like, Christ, would you live through me? Truly, do something with my life. Yet he went through this nine-month period um, where it felt like he, he couldn't hear God speak to him at all. Like, it felt like God was a million miles away. Mother Teresa talks about the dark night of the soul, where it feels, those seasons where it feels like God's distant and you can't hear or get any leading from him. Carl was going through that for about nine months. A friend of his invites him to go to a leadership conference in Chiang Mai, Thailand. He had never been to Asia. So Carl, on a whim, he clears his schedule, he goes. Now, at this conference, during one of the sessions, a missions leader um, from Cambodia gets up and starts sharing about the problem of child sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. Now, this was Carl's first time to ever hear about this at all. 14 years ago, before, in the West, we weren't talking about this a ton. Uh, about 14, 15 years ago, it was before a bunch of um, documentaries and, you know, the rise more and more of social media, getting word out about stuff. But um, the speaker there was sharing this story, next slide, about a Vietnamese refugee living in Cambodia, in, back in his village, in Cambodia named Nu. She's the second one in from the left, the tallest one in the photo. And he tells this cool story about this girl, Nu, who at age nine um, came to faith in Jesus at their Sunday morning church gathering, and she's baptized, and she's coming to Sunday school class with her friends every week. Um, tragically, at age 12, her grandmother she lived with, who's a Buddhist animist, um, got in trouble with some loan sharks, owed them money, ends up pimping Nu out to men on three different occasions. Um, the first time that it happened was um, to a man, they sold her virginity, and she had to be with him in a hotel for three days. And she came forward and told the mission what had happened, and, um, you know, saying, what, what do I do? And she shared the story of how on the first night, um, after she was raped, her perpetrator had fallen asleep, and she sat there confessing sin. Um, she was 12 years old. And she cried out to God, God, because this has happened to me, I pray that you'd somehow use it so it wouldn't happen to any other children. That was her heart. And um, Carl, here's this story. The speaker says, we, we tried to intervene tragically. New and her grandmother disappear. Haven't seen him since. Carl goes up after the session. He says, here's a check for $20,000. Will you help me find her? Will you help me find New? And he goes home and he couldn't stop thinking about it. He ends up getting on his face before God and he commits the rest of his life to do everything within his power to partner with Jesus to stop child sex trafficking. He starts a master's degree. His thesis is studying the problem of sex trafficking in Southeast Asia. He takes six trips 
to Cambodia looking for new. He just, this picture on the screen, he had it printed and with a translator, he figured out that all of the Vietnamese refugees in Cambodia lived on the banks of either the Tonle Sop or the Mekong rivers in Cambodia. And he's going up and down the rivers through a translator saying, hey, do you know this girl? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? And then finally one day on his sixth trip in July of 2006, someone says, yeah, I know her. Let me take you to her. And he finds new. At that point, she's working at a cosmetology school and Carl, through translators, explains to her he's starting a nonprofit that will protect children from being sold into the sex trade. And he says, invites New to come with him and say, hey, I want to hire you. Will you come with us and help train the younger children in cosmetology? When he's done, New says through the translator, she says, I have a question. When can I start? And in January of 2007, we opened our first girls' home in Cambodia. New was our very first employee. Since then, next slide, New has become Carl and his wife Lori's daughter. And this is an amazing, I got the honor of taking this photo as her wedding photographer in May of 2016. She recently married, they moved out here to the States, married an amazing man of God, next slide, from Portland named Gabriel, and we just see her story come full circle. Here she is choosing to marry uh, for love, a man of God, by her own free choice as a free woman, and just that redemption in her life. Now today, next slide, remember new, um, we're a nonprofit that helps protect children from sex slavery in 15 countries. We have 80 homes, and we've been able to prevent over 1,800 children from being sold into the sex trade. And what I love about that story is here you have an insurance man in Ohio, very ordinary person, who says, yes, my whole life, Jesus, it's yours, use me. And look what God does. And you have a Vietnamese refugee in Cambodia, like what we would literally consider the middle of nowhere on the map. Like I, I'm, I, I'm sure all of us have processed to some degree the comments from, recent comments from the president you know, talking about certain countries people come from, and I can't say the term he used, you know, up front on a Sunday, but isn't how the kingdom of heaven works so different from how the powers of the world think, right? Like, look what Jesus, the kinds of people Jesus uses. You might be here today thinking, you know, I'm a nobody, I'm average, there's, there's so many more people who are more gifted than me, or I'm such a failure, you know, I can't get it right. Welcome to the club, Right? The question is not, do you have what it takes? The question is, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you with him? Are you giving your life to him? Never underestimate what God can do with one person who says yes to Jesus' call to become a disciple. God will change you and use you for incredible things, for his glory. Look at verse 5. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Uh, fourth, it means Jesus sends us out with a message. What message? The kingdom of heaven has come near. And I'm sure you've talked about this in your Matthew series. It's a huge theme, the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew. The message is that the kingdom of this world is broken as a result of the presence of sin. There is something wrong with humanity at a systemic level. You don't have to look very far to see that something's wrong with us. 
but the good news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's another kingdom, God's kingdom, and the king of that kingdom, Jesus, has come to bring healing and hope. And we, as the church, his disciples, are sent out with authority to overthrow the demonic and to heal. But understand, those things are are only meant to reinforce the message we proclaim, that healing and salvation can only be found in Jesus, in his death and resurrection. And so being disciples of Jesus means we are sent to proclaim this message to our world and our community, to the city of Spokane, that the answer to the problems we see, whether it's sex trafficking or whether it's you know, overt racism and culture or alcoholism, or I think of the, the Me Too and the Time's Up campaigns right now and the terrible way that women have been treated for so long in our culture. Um, it's this message that the, at a systemic level, something is wrong with us as humans, but the answer is Jesus, that we were created for something better by a God who loves us, and though our sin has separated us from him, Jesus has come to bridge that gap, and there is hope and healing in him. You know what we've learned doing our anti-human trafficking work around the world? We've learned that it's not enough to just save kids from the sex trade. It's not enough. Obviously, it's so important, and we have to do it. But it's not enough because victims of trauma uh, for impoverished children around, and families around the world, for victims of violence, ultimate healing and hope can only be found in Jesus. So we make a point, you know, in all of our homes, for example, of, of sharing with the children about Jesus. And it's such a joy to watch. Um, just about 90% of the children in our homes right now have been baptized and come to faith in Jesus by their own free choice, which is, that, that's where the power is, right? Um, guys, if you are a disciple called to follow Jesus here in Spokane, you are called to preach the good news of Jesus to Spokane, to take the message to your campus, to your workplace. And and so yes, as disciples, we go to these areas of brokenness and we bring healing and love where there's um, areas in our community that need service and healing and hope, but we also are to preach the gospel. It's a balance, right? It's a both and. We preach in word and in deed. Some of you are maybe really strong on the word side, and it's easy for you to talk about Jesus and teach a Bible study, you know, with Christians. And you can, you, can, you can share your faith out loud. But maybe for some of you, your message is a little shallow because it's not accompanied by actions bringing hope and practical healing to your own city and place. And so that's an area where you could grow. Others of us fall on the other spectrum. I think particularly of millennials, you know, where it's glamorous to have causes that we help with. It's really easy to like serve and get involved with the community and be a part of, you know, people who need help, all of that. But then many of us are quiet about Jesus. Paul says, how will they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear if no one tells them? And so we're called to preach the gospel. Keep reading, verse 8. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. I love that thought, right? Freely you've been given. Everything Jesus has given you, salvation, by grace, through faith, nothing you did to earn it. Freely it's given, so now freely give your life in the service of him. Like Carl, that Galatians 2.20 Like, I've been crucified with Christ. My life is yours. Then he says, verse 9, Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Now, there's a couple layers of meaning to this section and a couple couple different takeaways in there in my mind. And so on one hand, we'll go with the literal one, the literal meaning of the text. Um, Fifth, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? It means Jesus is going to provide for us as we do his work. 
Okay, Jesus is teaching the disciples here how to rely on him. And he sends them on this mission, and he tells them, hey, don't take any money in your belts, no extra change of clothes. Uh, I mean, could you imagine? He's like, go out on this long journey door to door, but, but don't pack a bag. No extra clothes, no food, and by the way, no cash, no credit card, no money, nothing. Just go. Jesus is calling his disciples to a life of dependency on him for their daily needs. He's saying, go with the flow and trust me. Trust I'll take care of your basic needs as you do my work. And I think this is just a simple reminder for many of us as we come into a new year right now. Um, first of all, River's Edge Church, know Jesus is going to provide for you. He's gonna provide for your needs as a church. The meeting place, the people, the staff, the volunteers, the finances, the funding, the open doors, to be involved with outreach and campuses and your community. He's gonna provide for you. Your job is to keep being faithful and obedient. Uh, Individuals and families around this room uh, who are called to be disciples of Jesus, it's just a great reminder to start the year for us, remembering Jesus is going to provide for you. He's gonna provide your needs, right? If If he's called you to school and this vocation you're preparing for, he's gonna provide for that. Some of you um, are trusting God to provide you a spouse. He's saying, trust me. Stop looking for him or her around every corner. Be with Jesus this year. Spend time with him. Invest in your relationship with him. He'll take care of your needs. I mean, finances, just like my wife and I recently, and even in the car right up here, we're like stressing out about this financial situation of like, oh man, it's such a distraction, isn't it? And it's so good to be reminded, Jesus is gonna take care of us. He is. And so what I see in the Bible, you know, is if you plan to follow Jesus, the message of the scriptures is pack light, okay? We can't take any of it really with us in the end, so pack light. If you've been blessed, you know, with Finances and provision, give it away in the service of the kingdom. If you don't have it, stop obsessing over it and trying to get it and do what Jesus commands you to do. Follow him. He'll take care of your needs. Rest in that. But also at another layer, what's happening in these verses, sixth, I think what it means is Jesus, as disciples, Jesus is calling us to challenge the status quo. Okay, in this passage, after Jesus calls his disciples, he immediately sends them out on this assignment. In the ancient world, leaders uh, would send out representatives to speak for them. This was before technology, and so to get the word out about your message, your cause, leaders would send out human representatives to go um, to represent them. And so Jesus is saying to these disciples, guys, I'm sending you out to represent me as me. Here's some authority to heal and drive out demons. Just like I've been doing, you're now my representatives. And we miss it. Um, because we're not from the ancient Jewish context, but all of this stuff in here is highly symbolic. Okay, for starters, there's 12 disciples. That number 12 is important. How many tribes were there in ancient Israel? 12. When he talks about the staff, you know, he makes a note about whether or not they're to take a staff. Staffs were common in the first century, you know, used as walking sticks or to fight off wild animals as you travel in the ancient Near East, but also, very clearly in Jewish scriptures, the staff was an icon for Moses. Think of Moses holding up his staff as the Israelites battle or pass safely, you know, through the Red Sea, and so this was a symbol of Moses, and then Jesus goes into this description of the clothing, the bag, the sandals, no extra t-shirt, like what's up with that? Is Jesus a fashionista? Like, and is he against H&M's summer line? 
Like, no sandals, no t-shirt, no, 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 no. Okay, scholars say this is all imagery from the Exodus. This is actually the exact same instructions given to the Israelites at Passover. They were to walk out of Israel with nothing except for the shirts on their back. No extra clothes or bags or money in their belts. Nothing but sandals on their feet. Matthew, this is his way of making a point in his writing that Israel's story is reaching its climax in Jesus and his disciples, something massive is happening through them. Something earth-shaking is about to take place. Jesus and this new 12 are leading a new exodus, a new way for humanity out of slavery into freedom. And it goes on, verse 11. It says, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. And I love that. Search for a worthy person to stay with, you know. Not some low life or sketchy person who's going to kill you, you know. But as you enter the home, give it your greeting. He says, if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave the home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. What the, what the heck does all that mean? Okay, listen, in the ancient Near East, there were no hotels, and so as you traveled, you would live off the hospitality of a village or town as you traveled. And if P Jesus is saying, if people accept you to stay in their home, then stay there. Let your peace rest on the place. Don't move around. Stay there. But if anyone rejects you or slams the door in your face, that's okay, Jesus says. Shake the dust off your feet. We don't get that statement, but that was a subversive statement that Jesus is making, and we miss it today. But back in the day, in the context of ancient Israel, when travelers returned to Israel after visiting abroad to the pagan lands, they were instructed by the rabbis before they stepped back onto the holy ground of Israel to shake the pagan dust off their feet. Because it was believed that even the dirt from the ground in these pagan countries was unclean. And so what does it mean if, and if you didn't notice earlier in the text too, Jesus tells them, hey, don't start with the Gentiles. Start by going to the Israelites and, and to tell them to shake the dust off your feet inside Israel, this was a searing indictment of Israel, similar to what the prophets, uh, Amos, uh, prophets like Amos were saying at the time. Jesus is saying to treat people in Israel like you would any other pagan city. Like salvation is not based on your ethnicity or nationality. The leveling, the playing field is leveled, which for us, that's just like, goes without saying, but understand, in Jesus' day, this was, he was challenging their current cultural way of thinking. And as disciples, I think we too are called to challenge the status quo. I think, and on one hand, that starts in the church, where our status quo can so easily become, you know, dependency on religious merit and good works. Like, I go to church, and I read my Bible sometimes, and I'm a good person, and so I'm okay, I'm good. I'm spiritual, you know, I have faith. So I'm good. And, and no, Jesus is calling you to so much more. He's calling you to give your whole life to him, to bring everything, your finances, your sexuality, your decision-making, all of it to him on this great adventure of faith, live for his glory. And we're called to challenge the status quo in society and our community where in a place like Spokane, you know, people are pursuing the American dream chasing after a successful career, you know, so I can obtain wealth and a family and a nice big home and the luxuries of being an American, we have to challenge that. Jesus says, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Or on campus, you know, where the status quo is the partying scene and dating 
and whatever, you know, getting this nice degree so I can become successful in life. We have to challenge that, tell an alternative story where, in our, where our culture wants to say, you know, hey, there's many ways to God. There's many faiths out there. Whatever religion you want to believe is okay. Whatever lifestyle you want to practice is fine. Truth, it, it, truth is relative to your upbringing and your background. Believe whatever you want to believe. Don't, don't, and just don't force your beliefs on others. Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet. Jesus is doing a new thing. There's a new exodus. Why? Because the Bible teaches we are in slavery to sin. The Bible teaches it's, it's not okay to just believe whatever you want, that there's something fundamentally wrong with us as human beings. We can't trust our own instincts. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he coined this Latin term, incurvatus in se. It literally means curved in on itself. And he says human nature is curved in on itself. Like my natural tendency is selfishness. I'm my own biggest enemy standing in the way. And we need the voice of the Bible. We need absolute truth. We need an authority over us to speak into us as humanity. We need to be accountable to someone. And this way of thinking in our culture today is subversive and unpopular, right? Which leads us to the final thought, which I'll close with today. Seventh and last, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means it won't be easy, but Jesus promises to be with us. Look at those last verses again. Verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. I love this. He says, at the time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And you know, in a lot of modern day self-help Christianity that's out there today, we like to skip or gloss over these parts, these verses in the Bible, but they're always there in the call to discipleship. Jesus says, come to me, be with me. I'm gonna give you unconditional love. I'm gonna give you authority, mission, purpose. I'm gonna use you to accomplish amazing things and a lot of it is gonna suck. It's gonna be difficult. He tells the disciples here straight up, he says, if you follow me, he's essentially saying like bad things are gonna happen to you, okay? And living in the freedom and luxury of America, it's easy for us to forget, for example, there are actually more people in our world today who are being martyred for their faith in Jesus around the world than at any other point in human history. Did you know that? Here's a few stats from a nonprofit called Open Doors. They say, right now in our world, there are over 65 countries where Christians are being persecuted. An estimated 100 million Christians are being persecuted worldwide right now. And then check this out. In the last 2,000 years since Jesus, 70, there's been 70 million people martyred for their Christian faith. 40 million of those happened in the last century alone. Each year, 105,000 Christians will be killed. That's one martyr every minute. I think of, and you know, it's, it's gut-wrenching for us to read that, and it's a totally different context we sit in to read stats like that. For us, they just look like stats. But I think, for example, of a real person, my wife and I know, one of my coworkers with Remember New, who's in serving in one of our countries. Uh, we, amazing man, we met him at a conference Remember New did in Thailand last year. But he's leading our work in one of our 15 countries we're in, we don't disclose to the public because it's a persecuted country. And the, this man and his wife who are leading our home, taking care of children saved from the sex trade, he also doubles as the local pastor in their underground church, preaching on Sundays. And so we kind of keep it hush-hush that we're even doing anything there because of him. And just to meet him and his joy and to, to see him and, 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 and be around him is just amazing, right? And, and here, 
I, I think he's found the secret. Why does he do it? Why does he risk taking care of children and risk preaching the gospel even if he could be killed? Because I think he found the secret that having Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus is life and hope and healing. And it's good for us to remember and pray for those brothers and sisters. But yeah, here, you know, we're not being killed for our faith. But following Jesus isn't necessarily easy in our culture, is it? Matt shared some sobering statistics last week on the decline of Christianity in the West. And, you know, we may not be beaten or imprisoned for our faith, but it's becoming more difficult to be a follower of Jesus in our culture. And what I love about Matthew and the Gospels and Jesus is that they're honest. Matthew isn't some self-help guru or motivational speaker at all. He's basically saying, follow Jesus and you'll probably end up like these guys. Wow, thanks for the pep talk, Matthew. Like, but, but I love it. You know, on one hand, um, I love the honesty, you know, because I'm a millennial and we don't, you know, we're like, give it to us straight, okay? We don't want the political canned, polished version. Like, tell us the truth. Um, I think the problem today in the church, you know, is people present Christianity like it's three steps to a better life and becoming successful. And there's a sense in which that's true. Like, follow Jesus. Following Jesus will make your life better and successful, but the problem is Jesus' definition of better and successful is way different than mine, right? And the passage today is kind of like an anti-invitation. Matthew in his writing is saying, are you sure you want to follow Jesus? Really? Are, are you sure? Now, I'm grateful that we aren't facing, you know, prison or death as disciples of Jesus in America. That's a tremendous blessing, but, you know, I don't have to worry about my child's safety for following Jesus. But we are facing cultural shame, right? We bear a stigma. If you say you're a Christian, here, in this area, people will think you're homophobic or judgmental or mean. Some people will think you're uneducated or stupid or uncool. I mean, let's just be honest. In the northwest corner of our country, it's not cool, to follow Jesus in our culture's eyes. But we have the same promise here that the disciples had. Understand that when the difficulty comes, when the shame comes, when the hardship comes, we can know that Jesus is with us. I love how he ends there in verse 20. Did you see it? When difficulty comes, Jesus says, I'll be with you by my spirit. He'll give you the words. He'll be there with you. He'll comfort you. And so this takes us very back all the way back to the very start, that our calling is to Jesus himself. What if that's the beginning and the end of following Jesus, that we get him? What is that, that truth, that right there, that persecution aside, when the storms hit, when life crumbles down around you, when every single one of us in this room one day stares death in the face, because persecution aside, one day we'll all die. What if the original disciples, what if my coworker in this undisclosed country um, what if they know a secret that we don't know in the West? What if the secret to joy and hope and life in the end is found simply in having Jesus, in being with Jesus? That, that that can't be taken away no matter what goes wrong or no matter what falls apart. You have him. What if the secret to life and joy and hope is simply being a disciple of Jesus? May this be a year where you live as a disciple of Jesus. You can set things aside. Why don't we go ahead and all stand up?